Uh, Grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 82. This is a Psalm of David, or Psalm of Asaph. Uh, Many attribute it to David. Um, I'm sorry, it is, I mean, 82, Psalm 32, forgive me. I knew that didn't sound right. It is a Psalm of David. I knew I had studied hard for this. Um, uh, Psalm 32 is a Psalm of David, and uh, its context is the sins in which he committed uh, against God, uh, but against Uriah and Bathsheba. And so its context is coming from the confrontation against Nathan, uh, so 11 verses here. If you'll stand with me, we'll, we'll read uh, this great psalm. David writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. A steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to be so kind as to give us a proper understanding of this text. Open our entire being that believe in it, we would apply it and be transformed by it. May I decrease so that you can increase. Thank you, son, we pray. Amen. I'm sure you're aware of the, um, uh, the condition that amputees experience known as the phantom limb. Uh, this could be if you've had a partial bit of your finger removed or an entire uh, uh, leg or something like that. And what a phantom limb is, is um, this, your brain... Or it's like your body tells your brain or however it works that your leg or arm or whatever is still there. It is not uncommon for those uh, missing part or all of the leg to get up in the morning and try to like start walking like they did for so many years uh, only to discover uh, the leg's not there and and they realize that when they were on the ground. Uh, More than, than that... Uh, they will experience some of the same phenomena you and I may experience uh, with, with, with our bodies. Um, I, I run a lot. I, I play soccer in middle school and high schoolers. And every once in a while, every once in a while my ankles hurt. My knees hurt. My back hurts. Right? Your, your body just hurts, mostly because I'm not a uh, spring chicken that I used to be. Um, but, but that's normal to be expected. But, but these suffering from phantom limb syndrome... Uh, they, they get the pain of missing limbs, of missing parts. And, and they may go to the doctor and say, doctor, um, what am I supposed to do? And the doctor doesn't really have any answers to it because there's nothing for him to treat. It's not there. It is all neurological. And it can be quite debilitating for those who are suffering from this condition. I think when it comes to living the blessed life, we, we, can, we can suffer from something similar. 
especially for the believer, uh, what holds us back often are things we should no longer have. Certainly not theologically. Things like sin, guilt, and shame. What robs us of the blessed life are things that Christ has already removed. Uh, when I came to this text this week, and the reason I wanted to do this text is because it is an example, and originally I wanted to do Psalm 51, where it's a, a David's prayer confession following uh, his, the, the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. But I was drawn to this one uh, because we, we've done Psalm 51 before, and this is, this is a similar context, different, different passage. Uh, but I was struck that though this is a hymn of confession, which is what we talked about this morning, um, it's, it's a different type of confession. He is confessing that, I've been robbed of the blessed life because of my sin. And so when sin is addressed, I am discovering yet again the blessed life. So let's, let's begin there with the secret to the happy life, if you will. And I use, use that word somewhat in quotations. Well, I, I think it is fair to say that there is no higher priority for modern Americans than happiness. In fact, it is in our uh, founding documents, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Um, no one can quite understand what Jefferson meant by that, but we do know it is quite a central American idea. Uh, the John Locke phrase was uh, life, liberty, and property, but Jefferson wasn't a fan of slavery and didn't want property to be associated with slavery, and so he changed it to the pursuit of happiness. And therefore, we, we, we have a very American idea of what a natural right is, and here it is, happiness. You think about how much time and effort our culture spends uh, trying to measure perhaps our moral compass by this. In fact, the only thing that determines what is right and wrong is whether or not it makes you happy. If this relationship doesn't make you happy, you should end that relationship. If this job doesn't make you happy, you should quit that job, even before you have another job lined up. If spending money on X, Y, and Z will make you happy, you should spend money on X, Y, and Z, and don't worry about what other people tell you. If you don't believe me still, uh, watch movies. The highest uh, uh, goal of each character is they find happiness. One of my favorite shows of all time uh, has uh, the, the boss of this company. Uh, he is in a relationship that makes everyone uncomfortable. He's basically dating the, the, the mother of one of his, his colleagues, one of the people uh, that he is a manager over. And everyone disagrees with it. They say it's very bad taste. This is inappropriate. You shouldn't do this. And then all he has to do is say, this person I'm dating makes me happy. Why can't you all uh, support me in what makes me happy? And just like that, they switch and supported him. Because uh, all he had to do was say that this makes me happy. I can mutilate my body. I can, I can deny reality. But if I say it makes me happy, then that should be enough. There are countless articles and social media accounts dedicated to various life hacks and secrets to happiness. And most of the stories we tell ourselves are this. The problem with happiness is it is fickle as our feelings because happiness is essentially tied to feelings. Um, there are days that I am happy and there are days I am less happy. And if I spend my life chasing a serotonin high, uh, what I will find in pursuit of happiness is a lot of misery. Um, the Bible encourages us to pursue joy. Otherwise, you will find yourself in a constant rat race seeking joy but only finding misery. Uh, have another drink. Consume more caffeine. Uh, uh, here's a pill that will improve your sleep. Have you tried endless entertainment? There's always social media there. Go on vacation, spend your money, buy a house, do yoga, get married, get divorced, find yourself, sleep around. We are always chasing this serotonin hit. But the Bible tells us to pursue 
joy. But what is the secret to that? Well, you'll notice here, David doesn't use the word joy. He uses the word blessed. And we've looked at this word off and on, uh, actually this calendar year so far, uh, several times, and, and rightly so, because this is a word we find all over the Bible. And what we've discussed in the past is that the word blessed uh, has a rich meaning. Uh, it's one word that has multiple applications, and, and, and so we don't really have an English word fit for it other than the word blessed. So let me give you three meanings that the Bible often uses this word in three ways. The first is the idea of praise. Uh, this is where we, uh, Psalm 103, we bless the Lord. Now, you, the context here is that we, we give to God what he has given us. He has blessed us, therefore a proper response is to bless him. Now, we cannot improve God's existence. We cannot enhance his essence. What we can do is try to reflect that, and we do that through praise and worship. We bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Another use of this word has the idea of faith. So you're going to get this in the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, let me give you an example of this, Genesis 12. Uh, this is God, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Notice that God blesses so that those he blesses will be a blessing. And I notice here that, that, that the context isn't worship. Abraham's receiving the blessing. He's not giving the blessing. Rather, the context regards faith. All he must do is believe the blessing. He has to believe God's promises. And he must believe without works or anything else attached to it. It is simply an act of faith. Let me give you an example of this. I believe this is Hagar. I will bless her and give you a son also of her. And it's not Hagar, this is uh, Sarah. Yes, I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Again, it's the same thing. All Abraham and Sarah have to believe is the promise that they are and will be blessed. This is a matter of identity. By faith, we become the people of blessing. And, and you see already that in this context, blessing is something that circumstances do not and should not affect. So, so there's a lot of people in, in the ancient Near Eastern world in the time of Abraham who didn't believe he was ever going to be a daddy. Right? Their opinion mattered little to the blessing God had given him. All he had to do was to believe the promise God had given him, live by faith. Um, and he died believing that promise that God would give him, not just lineage, but land. The third use of, of this, and I'm sure there's others, but the three big ones, praise, faith. The third is the word we use is wisdom. Let me give you a few examples. You, you'll find this use of it in, in the uh, literature, Psalms, Proverbs, and whatnot. Uh, Psalm 1, 1 to 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So notice here that it isn't just a matter of identity. It's a matter of practical living. He makes good decisions that have benef benefits from them. He is blessed, and he grows in his blessing. So you think of it, there are a lot of people who, uh, may, who may be saved, but due to foolish decisions are suffering the consequences of those decisions. So on the one hand, they are blessed by faith, but they are cursed in, in the sense of, of their foolish decisions. One relationship after another, bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, uh, pride, everything else. 
And, and the, the Bible tells us that if we will follow after the wisdom of the Lord, we will grow in wisdom. We will be more blessed. Uh, another one, Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. It's very clear there, isn't it? That, that the one who finds wisdom uh, uh, finds blessing. Proverbs 27, the just man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Notice here that, that, that you, you are blessed and you become a blessing. And, and this has generational effects. You raise children who are blessed by virtue of your wise decisions. Right? And, and so, so that's why it's important for us to see the word David uses here isn't joy. Joy is the one whose transgression is forgiven but blessed because it has such a rich application and meaning. And, and I think often you can mix these, these meanings in the word that is used here. And, and I think David does have that in mind. So he's saying that, that instead of pursuing the happy life, Pursue the blessed life. But there is a secret to that. Now, I want you to notice this in terms of just how it works. Uh, in Hebrew poetry, they don't do a lot of rhyming. There's some there. Um, even in the narrative, there's some rhyming. But the rhyming, rhyming is really an English thing. We love rhyming. Um, Hebrews, they, they don't do that a whole lot. What they love is a tactic called parallelism. For example, that, that, that first word, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, you could say that that is two lines repeating the same message. Someone whose transgression is forgiven is like saying someone whose sin is covered. It's the same thing. Now I want you to notice this, that, 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 uh, that verse 1 is a parallel with verse 2. He's saying the same thing four times, basically. And then, so, 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 so you have to read it that way. However, within these two verses, which why we may not make it out of these two verses, um, you'll find that there are slight tweaks that allow him to enhance the full picture of what it is that he is saying. We would find this sort of writing annoying. And in fact, one of the keys to good storytelling is that every detail has a purpose that pays off in the narrative. You don't introduce a character who plays no role in the story. If you ever watched a movie, and as you read the thing in the movie, you thought there was a character in there. I don't know if you took the character out, the movie would have changed or the book would have changed. Right? We, we don't like that in English. But in Hebrew, that repetition is a way of doing emphasis. Of emphasis. But I think the best way for us to look at verses 1 and 2 and the secret to the blessed life is I want you to notice uh, that in these, this, this, this interaction with parallelism is um, he gives three words for sin and he gives three words for forgiveness. And this enhances the reading of the text. In English, we'd have one line, you're a sinner, be forgiven, you're done. But because it, it, it enhances it with the parallelism, we actually get a bigger picture of what sin is and a fuller picture of what forgiveness is. Three words for sin. The first is rebellion. You see it there in verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Uh, you, I, I trust your, your word is similar to that. But the word is, it really, it describes rebellion or revolt. It is often used in the context of rebelling against the king. Let me give you an example of this. 1 Kings 12. So Israel has been in rebellions, that word. They've been in transgression. Well, that doesn't work there, does it? Uh, they've been in rebellion against the house of David to, to this day. And so, so that, that's all the word means. It, it is an act of revolts. It is an act of revolution. Now, usually in the Old Testament, it is used in the context of rebelling 
against our maker. Let me give you an example of this. Isaiah 1-2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, for they have transgressed, or more, or more succinctly, they have rebelled against me. So much as you may uh, uh, revolt and secede from the union, rebel against the king, king, so too we could do the same thing against God. Now, this idea of sin as rebellion is not exclusive to the Old Testament. Paul hints at this in Ephesians 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The language here is that of rebellion. So, so what we see then is that sin is more than a whoopsie-daisy, which is the way we usually treat it. Uh, we would come before the throne of God and we say, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Sometimes you just make the wrong decision. Actually, <coughs> excuse me, actually, sin is rebellion. Now, in the ancient world, what happens to the rebels? You kill them. You don't give them a second chance. You don't, you don't give them uh, 20 years of prison and see if they've been reformed. You kill them in a very public, graphic way. It's really what crucifixion was for. So whenever Spartacus the, and, and his group of slaves revolt against the Roman Empire and try to take it over, essentially, in, in search of their freedom, they all get crucified for miles on both sides of the road, one next to, to the other. This is what you do against rebels. And so whenever we look at a word like this and, and we think, well, sin, yeah, it's bad, but there are worse things in life. No, actually, it is cosmic treason that we are committing. And if Jesus is king, sin is a direct act of rejection, disobedience, and rebellion against him. And what we are doing is that we are choosing, instead of crowning him, uh, we are choosing to crucify him again. Notice the second word for sin. That is what we might call missing the mark. There in uh, verse, uh, the rest of verse 1, whose sin is covered. Their sin is covered. Now, there's a literal use to this. If you think of missing the mark in the ancient world, you would think of archery. Today, you may think of rifles and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, let me give you just two examples of its literal use of missing the mark. Uh, in Judges 20, among all the, these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So here, the idea is that they didn't miss the mark. And so these are left-handed uh, 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 little Davids, like pre-Davids, who, who got slingshot. And they just, man, like David, when he killed Goliath, he did not miss the mark. And that, that's the word that you, you would use here. Uh, Proverbs 19.2, desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses the mark, misses the way. So you can see the literal use of this word. Now, one of the problems here is, is, is we may misinterpret what is intended here. If, 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 if I'm an archer and I'm at war, the last thing I want to do is to miss the mark. For every person I miss, uh, I still have to hit them. So if I, if I bat a thousand to mix metaphors in archery, that's good for me, keeping me alive. It's good for my side of, of, of the war. I don't want to miss the mark. And so it, it is bizarre to think that anyone would purposely miss the mark. And so we may uh, assume what, what the Bible has here is that missing the mark uh, implies unwillful accidents. But that is not what the Bible means by using this word that we have translated here as sin. No, the Bible suggests uh, the, the reason we miss the mark is because we are aiming at the wrong things. We're aiming at the wrong things. I bet every man has been given a grocery list and he gets down to that last thing. 
He looked for it once and he thought, well, I'll just, I'll just come back to it. I'll find it. And, and he goes back and he's looking, he's looking, he's looking. And finally he calls his wife because he's not going to ask for help. You know, he's not going to do that. So he calls his wife and says, honey, they don't have this thing here. What do you want me to do? And she'll say, where are you looking? And you'll say, I'm, I'm looking in aisle, you know, with the bread or something. She goes, why are you looking there? You should be looking on the other end of the store in, with the milk or you know, whatever it is. The issue isn't that you're missing your mark, but that you're aiming at the wrong thing. So you're missing the right mark that we are to point here. The aim is great. It's just the wrong target. And so we are pursuing the things that are not of God, but of sin. The third word used here is translated iniquity in verse three, or verse two, rather. Blessed is man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Here the idea is whenever we deviate from the correct course. Um, it thus carries the idea of injustice. Let me give you an example of this from Leviticus. Uh, you shall do no injustice. There it is. You shall do no injustice in court, deviating from uh, the correct course. Thus sin is a crooked and wrong act that harms others in the pursuit of the self. This is sin, and it is serious business that must be conquered. This is the most significant challenge we have as a human race. If we can solve this problem, boy, we would live the blessed life. What is robbing you and I of the blessed life is an opportunity. It's not the jobs that, that, that we, we may have or want or, or it, it isn't that our feelings are hurt or we had a bad upbringing. What is robbing us of, of, of the blessed life is sin, which means that until we address sin, we can't live the blessed life. So just as David uses three different words for sin, he uses three different words for forgiveness. Let's look at them quickly. The first is in verse 1, describing being carried away. Uh, again, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression, we looked at that, that is forgiven. There's that word. It carries the idea of lifting up or carrying away. Let me give you an example of this, a literal example of this. Leviticus 10.4, Moses called uh, Mishael and Elzaphan, those names will be on your test, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Notice here that, that it is the carrying of a burden. It is something you put on your back. It is, it is something you, that, that, that is, can weigh you down the longer you carry it. Um, uh, uh, John Bunyan, not to be confused with Paul Bunyan, which is what I almost said. John Bunyan, his uh, most famous work, Pilgrim's Progress, um, Christian, um, he's described as one carrying a burden on his back. And that burden stays there until he comes to Calvary. And, and this is the sort of idea that Bunyan is trying to describe here. Sin, and with it, it's uh, guilt and shame that join it are often described in the Bible as a burden to carry. Let me give you a, a fun little example of this. Genesis 4, Cain said to Yahweh, the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Sounds like he gets the point. <laughs> Sin brings with it burdens in a form of shame, guilt, punishment, etc. Uh, uh, and, and Cain is suffering this. Now, forgiveness then is the lifting of those burdens. It is something that we no longer have to carry. When uh, I was in high school soccer, um, one of the things that my coach loved to do to us was to strap parachutes around our waist and then make us run 50 yards, sprint. And, and he knew if we were sprinting, because if, if we weren't really giving it our all, the chute wouldn't rise. 
Uh, and so he would say, you're not trying, do it again, right? And you're like, well, I just made it halfway down there, a half pace, now, now I gotta do it again. And, 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 and what he, you would do that several times until you were just absolutely gassed. And then the last run, he says, I want you to run as hard as you can, but I want you to unstrap uh, uh, that parachute at halfway points. And when you would do that, now you were exhausted, you were not running fast at that point, but you felt like you were because that burden that was actually holding you back was no more. Uh, I, I remember someone told me that if I ran with ankle weights, that would make me fast. I don't think there's any science behind that, but I do laugh when I see people do it, and so I don't tell them. But, but I, was, I was told that. Uh, if you jumped with ankle weights, if you ran with ankle weights, you worked out with ankle weights, you would be this great athlete, which is what I wanted to be. And, and uh, it, it was always amazed me that you, you, you may do jump road, you may go for a jog, but the minute those weights came off, you did feel like you were faster and could jump higher. The same is true with our sin. Why do we carry things that Christ is willing to carry? Come to me, he says, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Or consider what the prophet Isaiah said. The Lord has set, laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. At the cross, our burdens of sin, shame, and guilt are laid on to him. And we are free, free from that. What a blessed thing that is. The second word he uses is the idea of hiding or concealing. It is, again, there in verse 1, whose sin is covered. Uh, the idea is to cover, to conceal, or, or to hide. Uh, in the generic term, it means to hide something. Let me give you a few examples of this. Genesis 7, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. They were hidden. The, the, you know, this is during a flood that the waters hid the mountains. That's how high they were. In Judges 4, Yael, we'll get to her in a few weeks. I can't wait. Yael came out to meet Sisera and covered him with a rug. Because you remember what she's doing. Uh, she's getting him to fall asleep uh, so she can, you know, uh, improve the sturdiness of her tent. We'll just leave it at that, right? But first thing she does is she wraps a, a rug around him, a blanket, and she... she, she uh, uh, goes all motherly, and then she goes all warrior-like. It's, it's an incredible story. That is the story that got me in the Bible. Judge me if you want to. I don't care. That burden's been lifted. I've been forgiven. Forgiveness, then, is the covering of our sins. Let me give you an example of this, Isaiah 85. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You see the parallelism. Forgiveness here is described as a covering. It is, it is to hide. Now, the idea isn't that God disguises our sins or he puts it under the rug as if nothing ever happened. That's a mistake we make with forgiveness. When we think forgiveness is saying, ah, well, you know what, no big deal. Let's act like nothing ever happened. Something did happen. It did happen, and it must be uh, addressed. Uh, but rather, it is the language of, of imputation and appeasement. For example, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what does God do? He takes the skins of another animal and he covers their shame. Remember that their nakedness, they didn't know they were naked, but when they discovered their nakedness, they felt shame. And so when God covers them, they no longer feel shame. They, they are covered by the blood of the lamb, if you will. My favorite example of this is actually Zechariah 3. We've looked at this before. Uh, then he showed me, this is a vision, Joshua the high priest. Interesting, his name's Joshua. It's Yeshua, Jesus in the New Testament. Standing before the angel of the Lord. So you have Joshua the high priest with the angel who I think is Jesus. It's just interesting 
uh, uh, juxtaposition there. And the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now notice here, this is the language of shame and guilt. Accusation, one of the greatest uh, 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 powers that Satan has. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. The, the language there is excrements from head to toe. Now, this is supposed to be the day of the Lord, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, where, where the high priest will go through a series of washes for days. He's isolated in the week leading up to this event so that he, he, he isn't around sinners. And he has to make sacrifices for himself, sacrifices for the priest. I mean, th this is incredible. And the fact that he would go into the Holy of Holies covered like this is, 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 is shocking, to say the least. Joshua, as the high priest, when he enters into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he's representing Israel. And there's Satan say, this is your people? This is them? You hear the accusation. But notice uh, what, uh, verse 4, the angel said, the angel of the Lord, remove the excrement, remove the, the, the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I have clothed you with pure vestments. Notice here that, that Christ is covering him, first by removing the sin and covering him with righteousness. That's the idea here. That, that's what David is describing. He's saying, I am filthy in my sin, but you covered me with your righteousness. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is, for, is covered. Here's the third use of forgiveness here in these two verses, and that is to impute. It's translated there, verse two, as count. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It, it speaks the language of to reckon or to, to count. Since our sins count against us, there must be an act of imputation whereby our sins are counted toward another, <coughs> excuse me, and their righteousness is counted towards us. This is the language of substitutionary atonement. This is what Jesus does at the cross. And the best illustration I know of this is the story of Jesus and Barabbas. I think we looked at this a few weeks ago, at least, at least in passing. I know I've done this at the Capitol. Uh, Jesus is carrying, there's that word again, he is carrying the cross preserved for Barabbas. We know this because the cross is already there. It's ready to go. Um, now, now, maybe he's carrying the full cross. I suspect he's carrying the beams, but that's a matter of debate. And then there's two thieves on the other side. Why does Jesus give him the prominent one, the one in the middle? Because that was preserved for Barabbas. He'd already been condemned by the state to be executed. So when Pilate lets Barabbas go, in the eye of the law, he is as innocent as Christ was. Remember, Pilate said, this man's done no wrong. He's acquitted. So Barabbas, in the eyes of the law, is acquitted. Jesus, in the eyes of the law, is guilty. Jesus is paying for the crimes of Barabbas, who's probably a domestic terrorist. That's substitutionary atonement. That is that our sins are, are not counted against us. You, we won't get to the rest of this psalm, and that's, that's fine, um, because these first two verses are, are worth it. Um, let me show you how, how this third use of forgiveness works in, in, in the Bible. And this, we can go all the way back to Genesis 15, the story of Abraham. Abraham believed Yahweh. This is when he repeats the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12 and chapter 15. And notice what the text says. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, let's have a little bit of fun, shall we? You want to have a Bible study real quick? And we'll call it a night. And uh, the game started 20 minutes ago. So the only thing that matters is the second half. Turn to Romans chapter 4. You tell me if you notice anything. Romans chapter 4. 
We'll read the first eight verses. See if any of this sounds familiar. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Tell me if this sounds familiar. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is Genesis 15, 6. Paul loves this, this story, this passage. Now, the reason he loves it is, uh, for many reasons, one of the reasons is because Abraham predates Moses. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. With Moses comes the law. So if the law saves, what do we do with those who came before the law? And Paul's point is, before there is the law, what we have is faith. Faith is what justifies. Moses never justified you with the law. The law condemns. Faith justifies. That's his point. So he's going to go pre-Moses, which Jews put him up in his law. He says, no, no, no. Let's go all the way back in Genesis to Abraham. Look, Abraham was justified for the simple fact he believed. Period. And he then makes the connection to the gospel. What saves us is that we believe, period, and therefore we are justified. That's how God has always saved his people, to simply believe and be content with it. Well, verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Would you not be insulted if on payday? I guess everything's direct deposit now, but, but you know, you, you, used to, you know uh, when I worked at the store, we, we had little mailboxes and our paychecks went in there. And, and uh, uh, it would be insulted if, if the paycheck said, uh, this is a gift to you from your company. Like, gift? Gift? I don't work here for free. Right? This, this is what I'm entitled to. Look, boss, you're a nice guy, but if you weren't paying me, I wouldn't show up in the morning. I wouldn't show up at any time. I'm here because you pay me. I got bills to pay and food to eat. I got to survive. So too, if, if works saves us, we can boast uh, to ourselves because we don't need God. <coughs> and we will miss the point that salvation is a gift. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Clear application of Genesis 15 verse 6. Now here it is. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Tell me this sounds familiar again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See what Paul just did? He said, we can make a clear connection of the gospel if we go from Abraham to David to Christ. See, with Abraham, he was given a promise. All he had to do was believe that God will fulfill that promise and he could die trusting the Lord. David comes who is shrouded in sin and shame and guilt and in his confession, he comes and says that I believe that God will forgive my sins and he will wash them away. He will cover them. He, he, he will forgive me. And Paul comes and says, that is available to anyone who comes to Christ. That's the secret to the blessed life. To be free from sin. To be free from sin. Now, the rest of the psalm is an application of that. We just don't have the time to look at it in any great detail. 
But you'll see there in verse three, verse five, he confesses his sins. I acknowledge my sin to you from there in verse five. Notice verse three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You see the misery of his silence, that he doesn't confront the fact that he's a sinner and what he's done was wrong. So that by the time he confesses, verse five, what we see is that, that he didn't cover his iniquity. God has had to cover his, his iniquity. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And then you get the celebration in verse six through 11, where he celebrates the fact that I am forgiven. I've, my slate's been wiped clean. I am a new man. This is the secret to the blessed life. You will not find any pop book on the New York Times bestseller list or Barnes & Noble or Amazon right now telling you that. But it's right there in the text. And we could prove it, right? Around this country, right now, even around the world, um, our people whose entire happiness tonight is tied to who wins a ball game. I love sports, and I don't have a dog in the fight for tonight, so I couldn't care less between these two teams. I can't root for Taylor Swift, forgive me. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Um, but in this, in a three to four hour game, we will tie our joy, our happiness to a ball game, to a party, and we'll be miserable about it in the morning. What a miserable way to live. And there's nothing wrong with ball. I love, I love sports. Love it. You know, I watched Arsenal this morning. I've watched the highlights 20 times today. I love sports. But shouldn't it be <coughs> that what we pursue transcends all of that? And we have it here in the gospel. Christ who forgives the worst of sinners because he is the greatest of all gods. That's good news. Well, let's be dismissed. We'll pray and we'll call it an evening. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for...